0: Hello and welcome to the very first Hope Not Hate podcast. Uh, This is something we've been talking about doing for a very long time, so we're very excited to finally get it up and running. Um, We're going to have a podcast for you every other week and some other bits in between them. We're going to be doing long reads and the like. Uh, We'll be summarising what's happening here at Hope Not Hate. Uh, We'll be bringing you the latest cutting-edge research we're doing. We'll be discussing all the latest news, keeping you up to date with our campaigns, our publications, all that sort of good stuff. We're going to have lots of exciting interviews for you uh amusing games and i'm sure lots of other bits and bobs besides uh my name is joe mulhall i'm a senior researcher here and joining me each week will be martin patel that's martin with two a's who's our digital director say hello martin hi there that's martin with two a's and no (laughs) r that is two a's yeah and also joining us each week is hope not hates journalist in residence uh sophia khan roof say hello Hi, and mine is with a Y. There you go. We'll be giving you all the social media details later so you can follow us for <laughs> more exciting content. So basically, each week we'll be covering kind of the topics that are in the news. Um, today we're going to be covering about three or four and then we're going to have a really interesting interview that Sophia's done on uh, Enoch Powell. Not with Enoch Powell, I hasten to add. That would um, be
1: impressive,
0: though. It would have certainly been interesting. Maybe not on this podcast, though. <laughs> um, so that will be coming up after that. But firstly, we're going to go over to Martin. To talk. What would you like to talk about this week?
2: Yeah, i um, big news. News this Monday, which was that the last uh, BNP councillor has decided not to stand in this May's elections. Um, That brings about the end of the BNP, and this is this is big news. You know, They, they established themselves in the last couple of decades as the most successful extreme far right party in British politics. Um, their first council was elected in 1993, it broke through in 2002, winning a bunch of council seats in Burnley, Lancashire, other places, uh, leading to their peak where they had 55 councils across Britain. And we'll remember the infamous Nick Griffin, who was elected to European Parliament, where he sort of held his seat from 2009 to 2014.
1: So what, what was their downfall?
2: Hope not hate. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, I think, well, I think,
1: we can't take all the credit, surely.
0: No, I mean, I think it's a combination of things. I mean, the rise was so scary, as Martin said, it was the most successful far-right party in British history. But um, in 2010, I think the anti-fascist movement really rallied. I think the mainstream political parties understood the threat better and really rallied against it. And generally speaking, the communities which they'd blighted for the last 10 years stood up, fought back and, and kind of turned the tide.
2: And their success was very sort of uh, pocketed, I would say. Um, as Hope Not Hate supporters might know, um, we ran a, a significant campaign in Barking and Dagenham, which was one area where they were very prominent um, in the past. Other areas as well. I think Joe was involved in a number of our on-the-ground efforts around the UK over over a number of years. Is that right? Yeah, I mean, I started in Barking and Dagenham back in end of 2009
0: and worked on the 2010 campaign. Which was unbelievable. As a first campaign to get involved in, we had, you know, we had days of action with f- over 500 people on the streets. We handed out hundreds of thousands of pieces of campaign literature. You know, we had amazing days. They were really exciting days at the time. It was terrifying. We all thought that they were going to win the council. To- to- I mean, the election before, if they'd stood more councillors in Barking and Dagenham, they would have won the council. Um, and so, for them to lose all twelve in 2010 was a massive success for us. It was a huge campaign. But we also did it all over the country. We, you know, we did massive campaigns in Stoke. We did massive campaigns in Burnley and Pendle. I'm kind of disappointed, actually, that he's not standing again in Pendle. <laughs> I've spent years going up to Burnley. Uh, like the hope not hate team would always get a bus and we'd go up to Burnley and campaign, and um, it's kind of a shame. I missed the I, I missed it up there. You miss like, Burnley. I do actually. Yeah, the Pendle's absolutely beautiful, like Pendle Hill and stuff. So we, it was always a nice place to leaflet. But But um, we can give Brian Parker a call and see if he'll reverse that yeah, decision yeah. again. <laughs> no, and so yeah, I mean there were, and then after 2010 we did massive campaigns in Stoke. Um, kind of kicked them out of there. We had again, like Amber Valley was another big campaign we had. We did some stuff in North Wales. I mean, this is a campaign that we've been hammering away at for ten years. I mean, it's the reason we were set up, of course, was to go at the BNP. So it's a huge day. I mean, the excitement, you know, is completely justified. This is we're talking about a campaign that's had hundreds of thousands of people get involved you know, delivering millions of bits of literature and genuinely actually like a really good example of a campaign that's well run, affecting really good change. So I don't think it should be underestimated how exciting it is that they've finally been knocked away,
2: considering how
0: terrifying they were just 10 years ago, you know.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I think I've just been looking at our our emails and our social media in the last week or so and had people who joined the Hope Not Hate campaign back in 2009 who've been getting in touch, sort of saying about their experiences on the streets there, how uh, amazing it was, how fired up they were and how it sort of set the tone for them for the bit of their political activism as well. You know, I think it's quite a formative thing for a lot of, of activists of our generation's time as well. Is it fair to say that the BNP is a racist nationalist party? There's never been anything like it in the UK that's had as much su- electoral success. Yeah, nothing. Uh, I mean, yeah, I mean, it was, it was a racial nationalist
0: organisation. It was an explicitly fascist party. It's individuals that set it up and its ideological roots go back to the Second World War uh, and if not before... So in terms of its electoral success, it was far more successful than any kind of far-right party in British in British history. I mean, even kind of Oswald Mosley's British Union of Fascism never had that sort of success.
2: Yeah, and, and lo- looking forward, um, you know, so we've got upcoming local elections in May. UKIP is standing in a bunch of places. We've got For Britain, which is a splinter group. I mean, what do you think about the state of the political far-right uh, in this year's elections and moving forwards?
1: So in a way, it's very positive. I mean, UKIP is contesting uh, 12% of the seats in this election. And it's a drop of 75% from the 2014 elections. Wow. So I'm not saying there aren't new emerging uh, threats, but uh, the the old school uh, far right doesn't seem to be doing as well.
0: Yeah, I mean, there's lots of good news when it comes to this election in terms of kind of the electoral far right being in the toilet.
2: Um, yeah, we've got a great blog about it on our site where you can read about the, all the candidates across the far right parties uh, that are standing in, in, in May's elections. I think it's, it's a good and quite quite positive read, actually, about the, the plummeting in, in support for, for Britain, UKIP and the rest of the bunch. Great. I'll stick a link in the description. Yeah, um, that actually brings us on really nicely
0: to the next topic. Um, Sophia, we've got a democracy week here at Hope and I Hate. Do you want to tell us a bit about that? Yeah, that um,
1: from the 10th to the 17th of April, we are having our democracy week just before the local elections, which are happening on the 3rd of May. Uh, but the deadline to register to vote is on the 17th of April. So, our democracy engagement team has been targeting areas around London to increase voter engagement um, and turnout.
2: Yeah, it's only five days to go to register to vote. So, make sure anyone listening, you've done that. Everyone you know has done that. Joe, have you done it? I actually haven't registered to vote yet. No. Um, uh, that's not even me joking. But I he will I, be I doing it today. I, I will be doing it
0: straight after this podcast. Um, how. Uh, well, I, this sounds like it's a setup, but it's not. But how, how
2: would I do it? Tell us, tell everyone how to register.
1: Uh, well, you just have to go to a website. Uh, Martin, what was the website again?
2: That's all I'm useful for. Gov.uk forward slash register dash two dash vote. We'll stick it on uh, the episode description. It's all over. Hope not hate social media. It's quick and easy. It
1: takes about five minutes. And you do need your national insurance uh, number, but you can fill that out later. So even if you don't have it on you right now. And I mean, local elections are important. And they're the, the most underrepresented one, despite the fact that the most people can vote in it. I mean, EU citizens can vote in it for the last time until their Brexit status is resolved. Commonwealth, Irish, British citizens can all vote in this.
0: I'm actually really glad we're we're talking about vote registration because it's something that we've been doing for years, and it's kind of one of the underrepresented elements of our campaign. One of the reasons that a lot of these far right candidates snuck through was often through massively low turnouts in 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 certain elections. So that's why Hope Not Hate started looking at vote registration as a way to as a way to combat the BNP originally, and um, I'm glad we're doing it, and it's been a really exciting campaign that we've been doing for a few years we've been doing it with
1: ben and jerry's ben and which jerry's. makes it even better because there's free ice cream involved for the people who register of course
0: absolutely and you
2: know in uh the beautiful weather we're having at the moment who you know ice cream's key well you know i think voter registration and ice cream lends itself to all kinds of great puns i believe ben and jerry's have come up with don't get frozen out ha ha haha <laughs> uh, but it's important despite you know. that do register to vote <laughs> look, look i mean it's important people move house uh you got to re-register every time you move um it, it it's a bit of a burden and we we're, we're there to remind people um we want people to participate you know the, people i think it's easy to get confused local elections are may the 3rd but you got to register by the 17th of april so it's not that confusing is it let's be honest <laughs> come on there's two separate dates. Well,
0: uh, <laughs> Joe, you haven't registered. that's yet. true. That, to be fair, I haven't registered. You can't yet. really. Yeah, that is fair enough. For those of us who don't know, and I'm, I'm kind of, just me including that, uh, what do local councils actually do?
1: So, every local issue you can think of, from libraries to crime reduction to old people,
2: looking <laughs> after old people, <laughs> I would say. Councils do. And all. looking after the high streets, you know? <laughs> Maybe those things go hand in hand. You know, it's, it's real local issues, um, things that you wouldn't necessarily know. Uh the councils were responsible for it turns out they are. I mean I think I've learned a lot through <laughs> the the old people. Week as well. <laughs> old people for one. <laughs>
1: And one thing to be aware of is that some uh, councils are trialling photo ID, So it's something to be aware of. The areas include Swindon, Bromley and Watford. And I feel like it might be something that, that's been imported from the US because they have quite a few states that require all sorts of uh, identification. And
0: um, It's quite
2: nasty in America, isn't it? I mean, it's about registering ethnic minorities yeah, sometimes. Yeah, and- well, I mean, yeah, voter registration issues in the US go back to Jim Crow days. Um, it's it's a major thing, and we're seeing a resurgence uh, on a state-by-state basis over in America now of them hardening the, the rules, creating... Uh, significant lack of access to underrepresented communities and that's really what our, our work is about too it's about minority groups young people the people who are traditionally underrepresented in all in all areas of government and fighting back against the the, the techniques of, of of kinds of voter suppression that have been seen in the u.s for, for years
1: and the u.s students uh, on campus in london seem to be very much aware they have uh, midterm elections in november
0: oh um good stuff i need to we need to wrap it up there so i mean the well, the the takeaway is go and register to vote and don't vote for anyone horrible. Um, I'll let you decide who's horrible. Um, I wanted to talk very briefly. We've got a big report coming out today, so I thought I would uh, abuse the privilege of this podcast uh, to talk about it. We've been working on it in the research team for quite a while. It's a, a new report called A New Threat, uh, Generation Identity, UK and Ireland. So it's about this relatively new far-right movement in the UK. It started or was launched kind of October last year as the UK branch of a... Kind of uh, a movement called Identitarianism, which is kind of goes back for, uh, comes out of France in about 2012. Uh, Generation Identity is a European far right network and they've been setting up in the UK and they've been placing a lot of time, effort and resources in getting off the ground here. So we thought it was time to do a report. We're getting it out today because tomorrow there's a big conference happening in London which Generation Identity UK have organised and it's got some of the big names from European identitarianism. Coming to London, we've got uh, Lorenzo Fiato from Italy, Abel Bodi from Hungary, and of course Martin Selner, who some of you might have come across, who was banned. He's from Austria. He runs kind of he's the de facto
2: leader of Generation Identity. I've got some some questions. Yeah, go me for too. It.
1: Actually, go ahead,
2: Martin. Thank Read you. the report. Firstly, the, the, these these names, they sound villainous. Lorenzo. <laughs> Lorenzo Fiata, Abel Bodhi. And we all have come to know, at least I hope not hate, uh, the foe at the top of, of, of the chain here, Mr. Martin Selner. Well, Martin Selner's been interweening in the UK for quite some time.
0: I mean, he was the one that came over and set it up um, last October when they did a kind of banner drop in London. Uh, but of course the government banned him. Whether or not these people get into the country is going to be the question. I mean, he's arriving tonight uh, in Luton Airport and so it'll be interesting to see if they let him in. They didn't. The government refused him entry a few weeks ago when he tried to come in.
1: Side note, Martin, you really think Martin sounds like a villain's name?
2: <laughs> yeah, <that's laughs> Martin with an R. Crucial difference. Yeah. Um yes yeah, so what do, what do we think about this this uh in terms of like yeah he's coming back to the UK just a few weeks after he was banned is it kind of uh nobody knows whether or not he'll actually make it into the UK yeah no i mean it's it's kind of all, we're all kind of waiting to see really to see what the home office
0: decide
1: and why do we care i mean this is not the bnp or ukip
0: it's a, yeah i mean it's a really good question actually it was one of the questions why we decided to do the report was around why we thought it was important i mean it's really important not to over egg generation identity, they're still absolutely tiny in the UK. In terms of a far-right group, we're talking about a handful of activists, you know, 50-odd activists maybe. But there is a few reasons that we think is important and interesting. First of all, they're incredibly active. I mean, currently they're probably the most active far-right group in the UK. Since launching back in October, we've tracked about 54 separate actions. I mean, that ranges from a few people putting up a few stickers to a banner drop to study circles to demonstrations. So they're incredibly active. They've been a, and we're talking all over the UK. They're really big in uh, you know their main, main area is London and Manchester, but we've seen them in Portsmouth, Luton, Newcastle, Birmingham, Telford. You name it. They've also been you know Northern Ireland. They've been doing lots in Belfast and the like so and Scotland. They've seen them in Glasgow. So they're really active. And the thing that we're interested in them for is first of all they're not a kind of political party, so they're not going to set up and run for elections. They have what they call a meta-po- metapolitical approach, so it's about changing the nature of society, changing culture. Uh, so they do things like hand out food to homeless people, which ostensibly sounds like a nice thing, but they what they call them is like warm pork suppers, which it sounds disgusting.
2: I wouldn't be allowed one of those. No, <laughs>
0: um, and but the whole point of that is, and they're they're taking that from a kind of identitarian movement in France, which did the same thing, which was they put pork in it so that Muslims homeless Muslims can't have the food. So there's kind of, they're very anti-Muslim. Um, the thing is, is they look very tech savvy. If you look at their website, it's great. It's the best, I would argue, the best website the far right in the UK has ever produced. You were very impressed,
1: weren't you? I was <laughs>
0: impressed with it. I mean, it's, the branding's actually quite similar to ours. But, yeah. <laughs> but it's, uh, the website's great. Um, uh, then, but the problem is, is that kind of masks how extreme they are. Generation identities ide- ideology is actually really extreme. They call it ethno pluralism, but in essence, it's racial separatism. It's ethnic separatism. Um, their policies have uh, kind of they call it remigration, but it's actually about repatriation. They talk about lowering the standards of living for immigrants in the UK to the point where they leave or actually forcibly removing them. So while they look kind of shiny and tech-savvy and they're quite young and approachable, they're actually their ideas are really extreme. So that's why we're interested. In and them.
1: when they say immigrants, they mean like third-generation immigrants?
0: Well, they talk. what they talk about is ethno-cultural identity. So mm. they say it's a combination so of white. culture and ethnicity. So of course, the ethnicity bit obviously involves a level of race and that's the element
2: correct me if i'm wrong but i mean a lot of these terms are new to me not being a researcher um they seem to have a problem with muslims in europe a lot uh, yeah yeah i mean yeah i mean their big thing is what they call like the islamization of europe they see
0: themselves as being kind of conquered by muslims that's why one of their big slogans is reconquista going back to kind of the spanish reconquista when the moors were based in spain and the iberian peninsula so their big thing again is about this war with muslims getting them out of europe
1: And where are they most dangerous in Europe?
0: Uh, The the big branches are France, where it was set up, Austria, now with Martin Selner, Germany and Italy. They're the big four. They've got branches in other places they've been setting up in Scandinavia. Denmark's got an interesting branch. Um, We've seen them in uh, the Balkans. I mean, they've kind of been spreading really quickly. This is the group, by the way, that did the Defend Europe mission last year that you might have seen. So this is when a bunch of them got together. They bought a boat, went into the Mediterranean with a view to stopping migrant rescue ships Um, and we did a massive campaign about it against them we kind of held them up we got them stopped in the Suez Canal we got them stopped again in Cyprus we were kind of badgering them the whole way to try and stop them because we genuinely believe that they were putting lives at risk in the Mediterranean so this is a really nasty bunch of people Um, so check out the report and and the language thing you mentioned is interesting because um, we've actually produced a glossary of terms what they say what the terms they use, what they say it means, and what we, what we, what it actually means. So hopefully it'll be a really useful resource. But, um, that report's out today. We'll put it in the link at the bottom. It's going to be online and we'll be sharing it on our social media. So check it out. Please share it and send it around. Um, so I want to move on. Um, we've, each week we're going to, or every, each podcast, we're going to have interviews with interesting people. It's the 50th anniversary of Enoch Powell's kind of infamous Rivers of Blood speech, which he gave in Birmingham. Uh, the anniversary of that is coming up next week. So we're going to have a magazine special talking about lots of this stuff. Um, and Sophia, you did the interview. Do you want to tell us a little bit about it? Um,
1: so I interviewed Lisa Nandi, who is Labour MP for Wigan. And uh, Lisa's father, actually, uh, who was an immigrant from Calcutta, who came to the UK. Um, was very involved in uh, fighting racial discrimination. I mean, he didn't have a choice because this was the 50s and 60s, which was pretty awful for non-white people uh, when it came to uh, discrimination in terms of employment and housing. And her father actually debated Enoch Powell. Let's have a listen. When did you first hear about Enoch Powell? Well, I um, grew up in Manchester in the um, 1980s. Mm -hmm.
3: Um, The reason that my family had moved to Manchester was actually because my dad was instrumental in setting up the Equal Opportunities Commission he came to this country in the 1950s from Calcutta and um, immediately as he tells it uh, got involved in race relations not through any sense of choice but through a sense of obligation really the reality of life in Britain for immigrants, and particularly as they were known then, coloured immigrants, um, was very stark indeed. When was um, this? he arrived? He arrived in the 1950s and had a long history of activism in race relations. Later, went on to work for Roy Jenkins to help draft the Race Relations Acts um, and established the Runnymede Trust as part of that work. So, Enoch Powell was a very familiar figure growing up in our household. In fact. Uh, my dad used to debate with him quite regularly on TV. Um, It was a very angry time growing up in Manchester in the 1980s for all sorts of reasons, particularly the impact of the Thatcher government, but also because racism was a very prevalent reality on the streets of Manchester at that time. Mm -hmm. Um, There were uh, riots in Moss Side when I was a young child, um, just a few miles from us, and running battles between uh, young people and the police. And so Enoch Powell was a very familiar figure to me from a very, very young age. I think what's really depressing when you look back at the rivers of blood speech is how familiar it is. Uh, When you listen to the discourse from figures like Farage today or a few years ago from Nick Griffin and members of the BNP, it's very, very similar um, the the sentiments that they express the tactics that they use in order to divide us um, mm-hmm. and one of the things that I think has really happened in the intervening years since that rivers of blood speech is that my generation in particular I think dropped the ball on the race equality struggle what do you mean I, I think there was a you know after the huge activism of the 60s and 70s, which established institutions like the Runnymede Trust, the Joint Council for the Welfare of Immigrants, uh, the Equal Opportunities Commission. We had several Acts of Parliament. I think there was a sense uh, amongst many people that actually we'd solved some of these problems. And the writer, Afua Hirsch, writes very well about this, I think, about colour blindness in Britain Um, Mm -hmm. and the sense really that we've moved on from some of these Problems, but actually, what the research that Hope Not Hate has done has shown very strongly is that while economic uh, concern about immigration has fallen in recent years, cultural concerns, particularly around Islam, have risen quite Mm -hmm. dramatically. And that says to me that we have an underlying problem that we simply haven't addressed or sufficiently even considered as part of the public discourse in recent years.
1: Mm-hmm. And is, the, is that an issue in Wigan, a cultural one?
3: Uh, I think the, the biggest challenge actually is how polarised attitudes have become and I'd say that's as true in Wigan as it is in other areas across the country. Rob Ford at Manchester University uh, has written some quite interesting uh, analysis of O and s figures about how um, hardened attitudes have become on both sides we're very very separated in how we feel about immigration by age by education by class mm-hmm. by heritage and what that's created uh, i think is a a difficulty for progressive politicians because In recent years, I think what we've seen is an attempt to try and find some middle ground between those two. And as Rob has rightly said, what that has done is alienate both sides in that debate. I think the response from politics has to be much uh,
1: dramatically different to anything that we've seen in recent years. Well, that was my next question, actually. Uh, What do you think could help now? Uh, so
3: two things. First of all, it is a historical fact that concern about immigration rises in times of insecurity. And uh, in the run up to the 2015 election, I travelled across the country campaigning in marginal seats and wrote a piece later in which I argued that anxiety was now the prevailing sense of our times across both the working and middle classes. That's partly about economic insecurity, but it's also very much a feeling of powerlessness, I think, across the country. And people who feel that the things that they most value, whether it's time with families or work that pays well, that gives dignity and meaning to life, those things are increasingly under threat. Mm-hmm. And So the first response, I think, from politicians has to be to address those things. They are what the writer Jonathan Friedland called the oxygen that allows extremists to thrive. Um, But the second part of that, too, I think, is that we have to show some political leadership. We have to be very robust in the argument uh, that uh, a diverse culture is a good thing for Britain and um, and not threatening but enriching um, and push back against the prevailing argument of Farage and others that that a diverse community is the cause of the very real problems Mm -hmm. in people's lives.
1: So are you talking about mainstream political rhetoric at the moment? Um, I'm
3: I'm talking about um,
1: a, a lack of vision in this country, really,
3: for a positive future for Britain and what binds us together. I think in in recent years, what we've allowed to happen is a sense that uh, that we're pitted against one another, when in fact, you know, the, I heard it expressed quite well years ago by the Conservative politician Damian Green mm-hmm. when he uh, it was a debate. I think if I remember this rightly, it was a debate about the headscarf, and he said, "Well, you know, Britain has always been a tolerant country. It's one of the values that." makes us British. And I would hate to see us um, throw that away um, in the pursuit of some other goal. Mm -hmm. It's always been an odd thing to me that patriotism has been a concept that's been so comprehensively captured by the right in Britain, when actually that notion of us being bound together by common ties is something
1: that In my view, rightly belongs on the left, but something that hasn't been very well expressed. What do you think we could learn from that now? Because obviously the situations are not the same anymore.
3: Well, I think what you learn most of all, looking back on the history of all of this, is that progress isn't inevitable. And if you want to not just see change happen for the better, but if you want to defend the very real progress that's been made, then you have to go out and you have to fight for it every single day. I mean, my dad's generation, I don't, for them, it wasn't really a choice about whether to get involved in race relations. Uh, you know, when you can't get letting agents to find you somewhere to live, yeah. when you, mm-hmm. uh, you know, when you walk into pubs that have a colour bar, when you mm-hmm. can't uh, get a job despite being an English literature graduate because you're told you haven't got a good enough grasp of the written language. Mm-hmm. It's it's such an everyday Reality that you have no choice. But for my generation, the the great benefit that people uh, like him and his generation gave me uh, is something that the writer Tanahasi Coates talked about in his recent book, In America. It was the luxury of not having to be defined by our race. So when I was elected in 2010 to Parliament, I was able to talk about a whole variety of issues, foreign policy, economics, children's services. I I was able to choose in a way that my dad's generation weren't. But I worry now when I look at what is happening across this country that there are a generation for whom those choices are simply no longer available. And that's something that I think that we need to step up and address.
1: We don't have the issues anymore. We, there are some things that are unacceptable to say when it comes to racism. But on the other hand, uh, Enoch Powell's words are in, mainstream, um, are, are in the mainstream in a certain sense with Farage and some other politicians. I mean, I, I think where you draw
3: courage and, and, and confidence from is uh, in, my, in my experience of living and bringing up my family in Wigan, um, and feeling and seeing very strongly the warm response that refugees get in a town like ours, even where it's quite a new phenomenon, mm-hmm. and how well people respond when they're given the ability to do so. Just to give you one example, we recently had a um, a decision by Serco to place uh, huge numbers of young male asylum seekers into a hotel in a small village on the outskirts of my constituency without any warning. Most of those young men came from a variety of African countries. They immediately looked very different, the village felt very different, and people had no idea why they were there. Within about 24 hours, we had Far right organizations traveling from across the country with swastika banners trying to whip up hatred on social media and real concern from members of the community who wanted to understand what was happening, why they were there, you know, wanted answers to some of the questions that have been posed about safety and security and uh, the future for this village. Um, when we empowered that community with knowledge with an understanding of what was happening, with uh, the answers to some of those questions. The response from the community was absolutely overwhelming. And in fact, we launched an appeal to help refugees a couple of weeks later. And within two weeks, we had 36,000 bags of donations across Wigan. Uh, We had churches preaching sermons about tolerance and, and we had members of the public visiting the hotel in order to try and offer their support and And their solidarity, really, with what people had been through. And it says to me that when you empower people, uh, when people feel confident, when they feel in control about what is happening in their own lives and their own communities, the response is very, very different. And that's why, um, despite many, many attempts the far right have never really been able to get a foothold in towns like mine. It tells me that there is a very, very decent, very sensible, very committed majority in this country. But the job of politicians is to make sure that they have the space and the power and the confidence to make good choices um, and for that decency to be expressed.
1: So I found that really interesting. I, I like the point she was making about the fact that in the 50s and 60s, there was a big push against um, racial discrimination. They passed the Race Relations Act in 1968.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's, I, mean, it's really, I mean, what's really sad I always think about, we've got the 50th anniversary of PAL. And even just last weekend or, or the weekend before, there was the Football Lads Alliance demonstration in Birmingham. And you could buy pin badges saying Enoch Powell Patriot you know the 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 kind of Enoch Powell was right narrative we've seen the far right continue to use kind of kind of fought across the last fifty years but um I mean I think probably increasingly recently um, with the discussions around immigration in the wake of the two thousand and fifteen migrant crisis, the rhetoric around Enoch Powell has come back into discourse within the british far right um, and it's scary you know
2: mm-hmm. no, i mean he, he's a fascinating character I think around this anniversary we've got like Joe mentioned, this a, a, an in-depth uh, look at the speech and its consequences today. You know, racism existed then; racism existed exists now,
1: but it's different though.
2: The narrative of Powell exists in a number of far-right voices. I think we've seen poor imitations of him uh, to today. Yeah, like, I think that's, that's a really interesting point about he actually engaged with his constituents quite a lot. And while I think he he predicted dire consequences for the UK, which we know now not to have come true. Um, but he also ide- worked in and around different communities, mu- uh, immigrants from lots of different backgrounds and identified the, the fractions and the tensions that existed then and, and continue to, to face our society. I think it's just how we approach things, right? And, and the, you know, power patriots that you described, Joe, we, we fundamentally disagree with, with their approach to dealing with, uh, important and difficult issues like immigration. Um, and who knows what it's, we'll, it's a, we'll, a very it in-
1: interesting point, though. The fact that at the same time, Enoch Powell's rhetoric is now mainstreamed across far-right parties in Europe. And on the other hand, racist language that was... Acceptable or said easily during Enoch Powell's time, now you wouldn't hear it. So it seems like there's both...
0: Well, it's interesting, though, isn't it? Because Enoch Powell's pretty much sacked for that speech. right? Mm-hmm. And actually, now, if you look at the rhetoric that we would see from some mainstream newspapers and from some mainstream politicians across Europe, but also in the UK, um, they wouldn't get sacked for that rhetoric anymore. Um, in some ways, the, what we've seen in the last, you know, five, ten years in terms of the mainstream, specifically anti-Muslim prejudice, but kind of anti-immigrant sentiment it has become so normalised and so mainstream. And that's one of the things I, I kind of wanted to say earlier when we were talking about the upcoming elections and how the far right in the UK is doing really, really badly in terms of an electoral sense. One of the reasons they're doing really badly is because they're not needed, because so much of the rhetoric in their politics has been adopted by mainstream and centre that you don't need uh, political parties like that so much anymore. So thanks very much for listening to the very first ever Hope Not Hate podcast. We hope you enjoyed it. Um, please do get in touch if you didn't, <laughs> or if you did, um, we're. This is kind of a new project for us So we're looking for people to download it Please share it with your friends Please go on iTunes or wherever it is you downloaded this one from Make sure you leave a review um, Kind of, you know, the more good reviews I guess the, the more people that will see it And I'm sure if you're on the far right listening to this Which I'm sure some of you are I'm sure you'll be on there just as quickly to write horrible things about us So we look forward to reading them out um, Please post it on Facebook, Twitter, Reddit uh, Or, you know, any other social media platforms That you'd like to Um, also this is you know we do a huge amount of work here at hope not hate none of it's free so i'm always constantly told i have to plug this sort of thing Um, it's not free so we're trying to actually get 25 people to sponsor this podcast Uh, so if you go to hope not hate.org.uk slash podcast and sign up if you want to kind of donate or that's that would be brilliant and i think we'll probably be giving away some free mugs or something if you're really really generous um, and we've got some new mugs coming out, which uh, I believe uh, sound quite impressive. Um, so that's kind of everything, really. I mean, please do also follow us on our social media. I don't know, Martin, do you want to tell us about what are all the social
2: medias to follow? Uh, we'll put links to the social in the, in the episode description. We're on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Um, yeah, stay in touch with us there and, and on the website at the f- slash podcast page. Great. Also, Martin, do you want uh, to give out your Twitter? No. <laughs> Fair enough,
0: no? Okay. Uh, there's not much on there anyway, to be honest. You can follow me if you'd like to send me hate mail at Joe Mulhall underscore. That's J O E M U L H A L L underscore.
1: And I'm at S A F Y A R K, Sophia R K on Twitter.
0: So that kind of brings us pretty much to the end of today's podcast. Well, actually, one thing um, we wanted to do was, as it was our first podcast, we thought we would edit together some clips of the people that we argue against and campaign against within the kind of international far right. Um, we thought we'd let them talk about us. So here's a, a quick clip of all of our various enemies talking about what they think about Hope Not Hate, so from their videos and podcasts, etc. So enjoy that. Hope Not Hate. An alluring name for those more concerned about social justice than truth. And before I begin, I should say that Hope Not Hate is a sort of, I don't know, what you'd call them, Antifa investigative, uh, I would call them an anti-white racist organization.
2: Just when you thought
1: that the left couldn't get any more vile, vacuous, and degenerate. Yesterday, the European left-wing NGO, or Lee named Hope Not Hate, just published a hit list on its website.
2: Hi, I'm Ramsey Saul. I'm with an organization called
1: Hope Not Hate. It's an anti-fascist organization, and we get the name because you better hope we don't hear you say something we don't like, otherwise you're going to hate the consequences.
0: But this lovely organization called uh, "Hate Not Well, Hope Not Hate" is the is the name. Hope Not Hate is the name of the organization. But I, uh, I think a rather fitting name is more Hate Not Hope. <laughs>